Hello everyone, and welcome to Stock in Development, the podcast where two media strategy nerds dissect what's developing in the world of entertainment. I'm your co-host Eitan, and I'm joined as always by Carl. Hey Carl. Hey everyone. Um, today's a very special day because we're going to have our first guest of the episode of the episode, of the podcast. Oh my God, imagine multiple guests in the same episode. Um, He is a dear personal friend. We've known each other for over 12 years. We've been in in multiple countries together. We watched Game of Thrones in Switzerland. We've watched Game of Thrones, uh, Breaking Bad in Mexico. We've got watched House in Israel and uh, traveled all over the world. But for today's episode, he's also someone that has worked in acquisitions and distribution of media content. And then after he he moved away from that industry, he started writing basically freelance around around movies and TV, which is very on point for the topic of today. So Carl and I are just very excited to welcome Kevin Sachs. Hey, Kevin, it's so exciting to have you here. Stuck developers, how are you? <laughs> Is that our fan base name? Our, our three people so far? Stuck developers? I really wanted to coin it. I wanted to coin it. I think it fits. Hey, it works for me. <laughs> Thanks for being here. You're also being one of the... You've heard one of our first episodes, I think, one that is, it hasn't been released. You've given us feedback all along, so we're excited to have you. Well, I, I love podcasts and... Uh, the only bad thing about this podcast is that you have added an hour and a half of content to my life and being stuck at home, not having a commute, it is hard to program around, you know, you know, hours and hours of podcasting every week, but uh, it, it's moved to the front of my priority list. I, I, I've enjoyed everything tremendously so far. I really appreciate that. Or we really appreciate that. And I totally feel that too. I have maybe four to six hours of podcasts I listen to a week, and that's challenging enough. I It's impossible without a community to actually stay on top of things at, at the same level. But it's nice not running out of content like I used to. So that's a good thing, at least. Absolutely. Um, well, Kevin, you're joining us today because our, our main topic today is going to be reviewing the Emmys, which happened yesterday. We're recording Monday, September 21st. Uh, but before jumping into that, we had just uh, two very quick pieces of news that we wanted to touch on. Carl, please take us away. So it was announced this week that CBS or Viacom CBS is rebranding CBS All Access as Paramount Plus next year. So this is what the third, probably more than third plus named network in the last few years to come around. You've got Disney Plus, you have Apple TV Plus. I'm sure you have other plus services as well. Uh, it's an interesting move for sure. CBS All Access has been a a pretty dominant force amongst the streaming services. Uh, anywhere between 8 and 10 million subscribers, but it's a pretty small service. So for the amount of money CBS is putting into the service, it's been doing well. But they're radically trying to expand the service to include the entire back catalog of Paramount Pictures, uh, maybe Showtime content as well that's been debated back and forth. But I'm interested to see what happens with the service beyond just the absolutely terrible name. What about you guys 
I I've never had CBS All Access, so the change to Paramount Plus does nothing for me. <laughs> what about you, Kevin? I live in Canada, so CBS All Access is not available here. A lot of the CBS All Access show, I think the crown jewel of that All Access channel so far, um, except for Picard, which I think did not air on on uh, just the network, I think it was just in the app, uh, is The Good Fight, kind of the spin-off of The Good Wife, which I think is a successful show in Canada that is on Prime Video. And... Hmm. Uh, Picard is on a different uh, streaming service here as well. So I I have no opinion except that as the non-English speaker, non-native English speaker on the panel here, I want to raise the point that the One name... One of the two. <laughs> I mean, Eitan is debatable. Eitan oh. is debatable. Uh you you tell me. I think the name Paramount Plus makes grammatically little sense. Um, <laughs> out of the plus names, I think it's the weakest plus name. But uh, I think it's still better than Prime Video. I, a big takeaway for me is that, uh, Carl, if in six months we realize we really want to take the podcast to new heights, we should just rename to Stocking Development Plus. That, that should be our be Patreon tier. There you go. Yeah. That would be great. Yeah. Paramount, it's it's a weird choice for sure. Uh, we were talking before the episode about the fact that of the Viacom CBS properties, both CBS and Showtime are stronger brands to most people. Paramount really doesn't have that, that strong of a brand anymore. I mean, they have 100 years of content. But, I mean, you look at the, the properties right now. They Mission Impossible is really their only big franchise. It's... There, it's a weird branding choice for sure in comparison to like Disney or Apple TV, which obviously Apple TV is a new entrant into the, the streaming space, but I mean, it's Apple. Most people are watching their, these things on Apple devices anyway, or not most people, but a lot of people are watching things on Apple devices. It's, it's a weird move for sure. I'm, I'm definitely one of the people that goes to see a movie, probably Mission Impossible, every two or three years and sees Paramount and it's like, ah, they still exist. Good. Interesting. I like the mountain. Yeah, and I think, um, as Carl said, they have more recognizable brands. I think Disney being like the exception where people really know the studio, like I, I would be weirded out to, to have like a Universal Plus or a Warner Brothers Plus. Um, so I, I don't understand the move. And, and as you said, Carl, Paramount is just not that relevant a player. Um, in blockbusters or even in in, in niche and, and kind of awards fodder content either. So I think it's weird. It is weird. And with the, I want to put one button onto it, kind of leading into Emmy's talk. We have one more piece of news before that. Uh, it's If you look at their streaming properties, we've talked about Star Trek, we've talked about The Good Fight, uh, Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone is also on there. CBS really hasn't been getting much awards attention or much even critical attention for what they're putting on this platform as far as original content. So it seems like it's been more of a library play. Uh, they do have sports rights and linear content, uh, which is kind of unique for some of these standalone streaming services. But anyway, let's move on further in the news. Eitan, what do you got for us? One topic that we haven't really touched on a lot on the podcast is gaming. And the big news that actually happened today it was it was announced that Microsoft is acquiring 
Zenimax, which is a parent company of Bethesda Software. And Bethesda is, is really one of the probably three biggest game developing studios. They develop uh, Doom, Wolfenstein, Dishonored, Deadloop, uh, Fallout, The Elder Scrolls, and they are bringing it into the Microsoft family at a, at a point in time where the new Xbox and the new PlayStation are coming out in the next couple of months. So um, we won't get into a lot of detail, but kind of one one kind of point of view is the strength that this might bring to Microsoft in terms of exclusive content. At the beginning of the Xbox, they were really they really tried to beef up their exclusives, and they they really always lacked PlayStation. But in the last couple of years, they started moving more into having a really strong breadth of content. Their Game Pass service, which is their streaming um, gaming subscription, is actually very strong and being able to offer a lot of these franchises that Bethesda brings. It, my first reaction is that it might be more from that side than the exclusives, uh, but it will be interesting. Also because Bethesda, um, I believe actually Deadloop is gonna be a PlayStation 5 exclusive, but it's not gonna be produced by Microsoft, but it's just gonna be one of these topics that we'll, we'll touch on more um, on a later episode. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on this acquisition. I'm definitely interested to see how it evolves. If you look back in 2000, Microsoft acquired Bungie, which was an independent studio. They created Halo, as well as Marathon, and some early games. Uh, and Halo was actually intended to be more of a Mac release because Marathon was uh, a flagship Mac OS 9 game. And obviously, it became a flagship property for the Xbox. So Microsoft has a, a history and a track record of being able to acquire firms and integrate them. I think they also have a much stronger exclusives platform or at least used to in comparison to, to playstation uh i think that's opened up over time and just interested to see what happens here if they decide that exclusives are more important if you look at what they're doing with with like cloud partnerships playstation well, sony and microsoft have partnered around cloud technology over the years i think it's a more open community than it used to be and there's so much antitrust discussion around games right now anyway, too, that exclusives would be shocking to me. But we'll see. His, his history just might repeat itself. I'm a, a Nintendo man myself, uh, and I hope it does not get into the exclusive realm. Uh, I took this time uh, during the pandemic to play Wolfenstein 2. That's available on Nintendo. Mm -hmm. And, you know... You can just play this and this many hours of uh, Mario and uh, Smash Brothers, and uh, it was really good to play a little bit of um, <laughs> alternate universe uh, World War Two history. So uh, I hope they don't uh, don't make it too difficult to have ports into the Nintendo realm. But uh, please do more gaming on this. I'm I'm uh, really excited that you guys could introduce. That. We will. We will. This uh, literally happened today, so maybe next week we'll have an update on uh, what more comes out from this acquisition. Um, perfect. Why don't we move into our main topic today? So, uh, well, actually, before moving, this is going to be one of the first breaking news we have on the podcast. Kevin just literally bought a house like five minutes ago. So thanks for giving <laughs> us exclusive, Kevin. We're letting everyone know. Congrats on closing out your home. It was exciting. It was uh, sorry for for making you uh, making you wait. It's a, uh, it's 
it's a very very weird feeling but uh i'm happy to share it with with you and uh, with you the listeners not only did we manage to get news in under 15 minutes this week we also managed to have someone purchase a house during it so we're, we're getting better here we're, we're evolving we're growing <laughs> congrats this is very exciting it's really cool thank you thank you we'll wait for the house housewarming invite um so main topic of the week the emmys just for a bit of a heads up carl and kevin are tv buffs i'm a little bit behind them so i might be playing a little bit of quarterbacking a little bit of asking them uh some more questions or asking them for more context so uh that's a little maybe how i'm gonna play for a bit here spoilers Aton won our bracket for who was actually going to, to win last night at the Emmys, so I think he might know more than he's letting on. <laughs> I also used to be more of a TV buff than I am. I was rooting for Schitt's Creek, Watchmen, and Succession, so I had an easy night last night, but I've fallen away from TV. But I, That said, I still watch probably 10 to 20 shows a year. It's just not 30 to 40 like I used to way back when. Uh, but yeah, really happy to have Kevin on here to kind of shore up our incompetencies here and to just add some more color to the discussion. <laughs> it's going to be fun. Happy to help. I'm sure this is going to be something we're going to do often when we touch on a subject that we don't feel like we are, you know, we feel comfortable maybe topic, talking that much about. We'll have someone that knows more about it than us. Um, kind of as a way of introduction to this, when I think of the Emmys, I think of um, growing up in Mexico, the awards ceremonies were always kind of a, a big deal. Uh, the Oscars were kind of a big deal because we were usually a couple of months before the US in terms of distribution. So we would get the movies at around the time of the Oscars. So it was like, oh, what should we watch next? Uh, the Grammys, you know, the music was usually around the same time. But the Emmys were, was something that it was never... Like, we always watched them, but we didn't know any of the TV shows because they weren't in Mexico. So it was something around... we. You know, we dialed in, we watched it with subtitles, and we're like, okay, this is probably going to arrive next year. Let's actually decide, um, you know, what is going to be worth watching. So for me, this is kind of the place that awards um, have kind of in my mind. But kind of my first question for both of you is, what what is the role that awards play? Not only the Emmys. Like, are they still relevant? Do people in the industry still care about? Do consumers still care about? Is it more of a you know, the pop culture moment of yesterday being on Twitter and seeing what's happening? Or do you think like they might be losing a little bit of their appeal or their importance? Um, it's a very good question, Ethan. Um, if you if you say award shows, you really have to kind of specify. I think the Grammys have lost a lot mm -hmm. of importance. The Tonys are kind of after the effect. Most of the shows that win at the Tony Awards are usually their run is over and may, maybe you have a, a traveling company, but uh, in London and uh, and New York, usually their run is over or they're, they're evergreen musicals that are, they're having a, a long run, but then it's also difficult to get tickets. Now the Golden Globes, we can discuss their merits a little later. So, so let's keep it with the, the Emmys and the Oscars. I think that with streaming, um, the Emmys have gained a little bit more um, importance again, if not, you know, not maybe for the big three networks because they're being shut out because the critically acclaimed stuff is on streaming networks 
and premium cable. Um, but if they can snag one of these properties, that's an incentive for certain people to subscribe to a streaming network. So I think the streamers are very interested in the Emmys. They're, it depends on the streamer, but certain streaming services, they just want to eat up innings. So they're going to give you a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff. Not the CBS All Access model, even though maybe now with the Paramount Library, that's that's different. Netflix will give you their 10 to 12 really strong properties a year. Maybe that's even lowballing it. Maybe it's up to two a month that they consider kind of... And then it's just a lot of kind of niche uh, content where niche, like, they, I think they brought back, like, um, rom-coms or they brought back the kind of 15 to 20 million dollar movie um, that, that, that won't make it into the, the movie theater anymore. And the Oscars, I think, are still very important for in the industry for independent film. Um, they usually get a long second run uh, in theaters after that. So uh, maybe it's not in your cineplexes anymore or multiplexes, but kind of smaller second run uh, cinemas are really banking on certain independent films, getting recognition, getting into the consciousness, especially with the release schedule still being fairly aligned with these award shows where a lot of the good stuff people keep for the post uh, like TIFF and Telluride festivals that are now in September um, and until February when the award show is, I think the cutoff is sometime in December. There are exceptions to the rule with the Oscars as well. Uh, like we've seen Parasite last year that kind of premiered early in the year. Some of the kind of good blockbustery stuff that gets attention like black panther was an early year release uh, but i think the release schedule is still fairly aligned with these awards which is strange uh, with the eligibility window of the emmys being kind of from early summer to early summer it's still kind of aligned with shows coming out in september which they don't do anymore streamers <laughs> will just go all year round so um they're very important to me. Uh, awards are more of a marketing tool, I think, than anything else, and more of like a, a culture tool than actually necessarily like celebrating the best of, of art or culture. I think the Tonys are the rare exception there because it's such a tiny community celebrating like the 20 things that got put on Broadway that year that somebody dumped 20 to $150 million into making. So it, the Tonys are actually a ton of fun to watch, even if you don't follow the musicals, just because it's like a lot of really talented people up on stage doing skits and singing. But that's like kind of the only, I think, pure expression of like artistry as far as any of the award shows go these days. Yeah, the Grammys certainly have been supplanted by the VMAs and just other more, I guess, populist or, or independent awards, Billboard, uh, BET, like it just there's there's a ton of awards that kind of stole the thunder from the Grammys over the years. Uh, Gr Golden Gloves, we will talk about. They are just a strange other beast, and I definitely would say that like as far as like in the minds of Americans, maybe in Mexico and other countries as well, the Oscars are the highest award. The Emmys increasingly high as, as TV has more more prestige, but. Parasite was a massive anomaly last year, not only because of when it was released and the fact that it was an international film, 
but it's very rare for a film to win the Palme d'Or, which is the uh, top prize it can, and Best Picture, or even be considered in that. Usually, Ken prefers to... I mean, those are either just critics or European film executives or distributors. They're looking for, for stranger films or, or focus more on the artistry a lot of times. Uh, like something like an Apachapang, we received a cool film, can win the Palme d'Or. And like, a, a sing, not a single American is going to pay to see uh, Uncle Boomy, who can recall, recall his past lives in a theater. Like, that's just, just how it works. The so Parasite being a crossover success between like the critical community and the like cultural establishment is a really weird anomaly. But overall, like I think it is something that is very much just like a it's about the red carpet, it's about like vibing with the celebrities, like wanting to feel like you're at this grand party. Uh, I think the way they did the telecast last night really affirms that. And a lot of celebrities have and especially uh, a lot of these agencies have managed to transform traditional celebrities into influencers. I think that's what is keeping these ceremonies alive at the moment. Uh, but I, I think it's so much more about marketing and marketing people than it necessarily is about like the celebrating the artistry itself. And sometimes incidentally, both can happen. Yeah. And for me, I think uh, I usually at least until recently, I mostly interacted with them from an audience perspective. And uh, I think there were two things that were important for me. One, there is always gratification in seeing something that you like or you love or that you spend a lot of time in win something. You feel like uh, you got a confirmation that you chose something right. Um, well, also in the Oscars, Mexico has had a an incredible run, uh, run over the last five to seven years with directors, movies, cinematography. So that is always like very exciting to see. I think there is also a part of like, if you take out sports, this is one of the only live event that a lot of people around the world still tunes into. And that really creates something special for us in the internet, in Twitter, wherever you are, that you can feel like you're living with other people, especially during the COVID area. Something that I sometimes find frustrating, which I'm interested, this leads me to my next question is, that they have a lot of rules setting that sometimes seem to limit more than expand the types of content that people can learn about. Like an example, like the Oscars has some very specific rules for like foreign language film and how many entries each country can have. So like a movie like Portrait of a Lady on Fire from last year, which is amazing, kind of just couldn't get there because of a weird specific rule, which seems a little bit outdated versus the world where we live in. Yeah, the rule there being that for the best foreign language film, or how it's, I think, called from this year on best international film, still the country boards kind of being um, responsible for nominating who they want to uh, submit. And France having had this kind of battle of what should they submit, Les Miserables, um, Nothing to do with the uh, musical Les Miserables or the book. Um, a very good film as well. And uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, kind of a transformative film. I, I One of the really, really amazing films uh, of the past 12 to 24 months. I, I, I was really taken aback uh, by that movie and it stayed with me. Uh, you're right, Eitan, and as many rules as the Oscars have, the Emmys has so many more and we can 
get into them a little later. No, this is exactly the my, my next question, which was with with these rules and you know with the way voting works, also a little more generally, not only the Emmys, do you have any specific award shows that you kind of trust more or give more weight or less weight or you find weird because of either the rules that they have or how voting works or what they give awards to or anything like that? I mean, let's get into the Golden Globes of it all, which is the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. It's a body of 76, I think, somewhere in that ballpark, critics that represent publications from outside the United States that all vote on the nominations. They vote on all the awards and hand out awards for the best of TV and film. Uh, ultimately, like I, I think with TV, that ends up like creating some really interesting and dynamic choices. With the Oscars, the Golden Globes, essentially, like basically, you have 70-something people that you can target in the, the month leading up to the Oscars, kind of schmooze them into supporting your film at the Globes, and then people that don't have enough time to sort through all the nominations and voting kind of have a short list to work with from the Globes, and then that those become the Oscar frontrunners. Uh, it's a little more corrupt and strange there, but I think on the Emmys it's a little more egalitarian and interesting. Kevin, I'd love to hear what you have to say about it. Well, I don't disagree with you at all, but I see it from a little bit of a different perspective. Um, so I work in academia now where we have to declare all our conflicts of interest from the start. <laughs> um, I have tangentially known the former uh, president of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. He's a relative of a, a dear friend of mine, and we've uh, had a couple meals together. I agree. In TV, they are they have a unique advantage. With the schedule still being that a lot of shows are being released in the early fall or, or kind of late September, and the show being in December, they can crown kind of a new ingenue, a new like sexy young show kind of two months into its run, while the Emmys have to wait nine months to do that and uh, or or even more sometimes even 12 months to do that um so yes in tv i uh, i agree with you i think i also think it's the most fun show to watch um the like right now i think the last couple of years just like ricky gervais shtick has really run its course and is not funny anymore but they had amy poehler and tina fey uh before they had other really funny and looser kind of uh, hosts and presenters, I feel there's always this anxiety since like Billy Crystal has stopped doing the Oscars of finding a host that kind of lives up to that. And it, it kind of it flows. It's uh, it's also three hours, but because you have movies and TV, they cut to the chase. What is better about them about the Oscars is they kind of separate comedy and musical, which is a weird category, and drama which gives you a little more nominees in the acting categories, which I enjoy. I just, mm -hmm. I, I think we're in a world where there's so much content being generated. You, you want to be acknowledged, even though maybe people don't care about the Golden Globes. Um, but it, there is corruption. The, it's a well-known secret. They nominate things just for certain people to show up as well. 
uh, because they want to sit at a table or at a luncheon with people. But let's not get it twisted. There's category fraud at the Golden Globes and there's category fraud in every other award show as well. If I look at the Emmys this year where the biggest shows of the years are ensemble shows, it's just rife for uh, category fraud. And, and when we get to it, I will call <laughs> it out. But especially at the Globes, um, kind of the, the the example people always bring up is The Martian win, winning for comedy musical a couple of years ago. Uh, there's some other weird choices they've made. But I think it gets a bit of a worse rep than it really is if you look at the last couple of years. Yeah, and when, when we say category fraud, that's exactly what we mean. It's people getting nominated in categories where it doesn't quite make sense uh like wasn't wasn't like bohemian rhapsody drama in green book a comedy a few years ago even though bohemian rhapsody is a musical it, it's crazy yeah that is correct uh, that that happened what people often don't understand and then get angry with the award show or the the, the award giving body with is they think that the award body is nominating these people in these categories but it's the studios and production companies and agents that submit for your considerations to those specific categories. So it was quite a stacked category in comedy and musical that year where we're talking about Bohemian Rhapsody. So they said, drama is a light, let's submit in drama because there's drama in the movie as well, even though it's a concert movie, a terrible one at that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so it's not the award giving bodies fault that the people who are submitting the considerations are are putting people in these categories to have either weaker competition or to not have people of the same movie or show run against each other last year the one that annoyed me the most was brad pitt and leo dicaprio not being both in the lead category even though they share the screen the entire time almost or have just as much everybody has equal amounts of screen time i think brad pitt was uh supporting right mm-hmm. and, and leo yep. was was leading it, it doesn't make sense to me and it, there absolutely is a strategy element from the studio perspective so even like take last night Watchmen is officially considered a limited series because there's no plans to make another one officially. I mean, there might be plans, but from an awards perspective, it makes total sense to declare, okay, this is a mini series. We're going to run it in limited series. So therefore, like HBO is not splitting the vote between Watchmen and Succession, which worked out a lot in their favor last night. And that's not even the worst one of it because they quite early on said they're only going to do uh, whatever eight episodes it was last year or two years ago when Regina King won for seven seconds, that was a TV show that was going to go on. Netflix canceled the TV show and then just submitted as a limited series because it was only one season. (laughs) Um, Limited series uh, has been a category um, that a lot of stuff like that uh, happens. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. And I think uh, kind of a follow-up to this would be would love to hear from you from the Emmys, like how you explain a little bit that production companies and the studios are the ones that submitted to the Golden Gloves. Um, I know, for example, that for the Oscars, each member of the Academy belongs to a branch. 
and that branch decides the nomination for, spe for specific categories. So for example, I have a family member that is part of the animation branch and he votes to decide which five movies are going to be nominated. But then he, as a member, he votes on everything that got nominated to decide. Um, so I'm wondering how, how does it work um, kind of for the Emmys? What is the timeline that they look at? And as we get into the nominations and who won, just for people to have a frame of reference of the, the time period and the, the rules of the game. Carl, that is a sports reference for you. I know that rules exist in games. Thank you. Okay. You, you will. Yeah. <sighs> Kevin also had a sports reference before. I wasn't sure if you got it, but uh, okay, what, sorry. What was it? Uh, that Netflix needs content to eat innings. I kind of got that. Okay, yeah. perfect. <laughs> it wasn't really a slam dunk for me. So <laughs> uh, uh, I see what you did there. Very smart. <laughs> So it's actually very similar to the Academy Awards on that front. Uh, there are peer groups within the Academy. There's actually three bodies that make up the Academy. Atus, Natus, and Iatus. I don't have the full abbreviations there. I'm assuming I is for international. But within those, so like all the makeup artists are going to vote for the nominations for the makeup artists. Something that is a little quirk in the history here is up and it wasn't until recently that everyone voted on all the awards before the peer groups actually nominated and then there were judging panels of random people within the academies that came together this was rod serling of twilight zone fan or fame's idea so you would just have a bunch of people binge everything of the nominees together and then make a decision on the spot which is probably a little bit more fair, forcing everyone to actually watch it. But now uh, it, it's a free-for-all. Anybody can vote as long as they're a member of one of the academies. So it's actually uh, not like in the Oscar, uh, the Best Picture Oscar race where you have a ranked or preferential ballot where, let's make it easier, you have to rank your... There's only five nominees, let's say. You have to rank one through five your favorite movies if none of the movies reaches 50 percent in the first round the one with the least votes the, the one with the fifth most vote gets thrown out and whoever had that movie that was in fifth position uh, in first position they check their ballots again and go to those people's second preference and add it to that movie until a movie reaches 50 percent so in the emmys that doesn't work that way in, in the Oscars, except for the best picture, it also doesn't work this way. So if you are in a category with two or three people that are in the same show as you, which happened with Succession a couple of times, it also happened with uh, Watchmen uh, a couple of times, or once at least in, in DMs this year. If people really like Succession, but everybody likes a different character a little bit, uh, could be that they don't get enough votes and just the person with the most votes from a different show maybe then wins. Yeah. The, the preferential ballot system is really weird. We will go really deep into it once we have an Oscars episode, which I am saying that we will have an Oscars episode this Only year. One? Uh, we could do just one a week for a okay. few months. Nominations and awards. Or yeah. okay. But the, the weird 
the nice thing about preferential ballots, it's a bizarre system, it makes it really hard to predict who's going to win, is it rewards kind of group consensus. So for something like the year where it was Moonlight and La La Land, like it was going to be, those were the two. Like it was going to be one of those two. Everyone had those two ranked really highly, I'm sure. But if you look at something like Shape of Water, Shape of Water was my pick that year for Best Picture, but I seriously doubt that between like Shape of Water, Call Me By Your Name, Dunkirk, Get Out, Lady Bird, Phantom Thread, like there's so many kind of divisive or more personal films that year. So a lot of people probably had one ranked really high, whereas it was really low on someone else's. So since it was kind of this muddy lack of consensus, a film that was probably a bunch of people's second or third pick ended up winning Best Picture that year. Uh, But to Kevin's point, you end up splitting the vote with a traditional kind of majority vote of, okay, everyone gets one vote. Let's count up the number of votes all right, half the people went for Succession for Tom, half the people went for Cousin Greg. I should be using their names here, which I do know Matthew McVadden and Nicholas Braun. But anyway, it splits the vote and means that they're not going to win because somebody else is going to pull that. It's very similar to a normal election. Yeah, I think the other example of the provincial ballots that was weird was last year when Green Book end up winning and people went into the analysis and it was fighting against Roma and kind of the hypothesis was that a lot of people that even though if you took the average Roma was higher a lot of like old school voters that didn't want to reward Netflix maybe had them had them all the way down so even if the average was higher just because of those people that had them further down um, something like Green Book probably won which like you said was probably just a, a, a safer choice or or something like that. Um, okay, so Emmys work relatively straight. Whoever gets the most votes wins. You mentioned, I think, the, the timeline. You were going to add something around that? It's the timeline is just uh, June 1st through 2019 to May 31st, 2020. If the TV show comes out, the majority of the TV show, or I think it's 80% of the TV show comes out within that time frame, then that's when you must submit for the next year. So everything right now that was awarded last night was 80% or more completed by May 31st. But I did actually want to use your conversation about Netflix as a segue into kind of like looking at a big picture topic here, which is Netflix versus HBO. So on the Oscars side, a lot of people are really reticent to reward Netflix as they are desperately pushing against the theatrical distribution model, uh, sucking up a lot of the funding in the industry and, 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 Funding really original visions that might not get awarded, so the Irishman or Roma among them. But on the, the TV side, they are very much beloved. Uh, they had 160 nominations last night versus HBO's 130, whereas HBO is kind of a legacy player there. Uh, but I, it didn't necessarily turn out as well as I think Netflix hoped. Yeah, you're right with the eligibility window. There is a couple other rules um, when it comes to prime time. Emmy Awards, and I think they might have to be tweaked a little bit. So, for there is the Creative Arts Emmys. I think uh, you've mentioned them last week. They are in the week leading up to the Emmys, and they award a lot of the technical categories. And then there's the daytime Emmys, like you said, soap operas, talk shows that are during the day, and so on and so on. For it to be considered a primetime Emmy, the program needs to air between 5 p.m., 
and 2 a.m. and for 50% of the United States. Mm. So within that time frame. Now, it's weird with um, Netflix and other streamer players. When do you set that? And that's why a lot of the shows come out at um, midnight Pacific or at um, 3 a.m. Eastern to kind of just make the window. But I think they might just miss the window. So I don't know how it doesn't apply to them and if they have to tweak that. Yeah, that's an interesting point. It seems like for an, for a lot of these things, the rules are probably a little bit outdated or just difficult. Like we'll talk about the movie for TV stuff. We're going to talk about, uh, I'm sure in the Oscars, there's going to be a lot of talk this year because they changed the eligibility criteria because of COVID. But that's definitely one of the things that uh, I think it just confuses people. And uh, I don't know if the answer is just making it easier and more general or... Um, but yeah, that's a weird one on the Emmys. You also have so many of these players right now that were traditional players like HBO moving towards a model like HBO Max where they are more streaming first rather than necessarily premiering on uh, on broadcast. FX, FX has FX on Hulu right now. So Mrs. Amer- Mrs. America was a exclusive to Hulu rather than airing on, on FX. So that was a big streaming play by, by Disney this year. And it's it's all shaping and evolving. I have no idea how the actual windowing works. But I think it's kind of just also people know what goes where naturally. Primetime has always been had more prestige and it's going to be more the adult dramas or comedies as opposed to daytime, which is more reality programming, soap operas, children's shows, other things. It's going to be muddy and i would be, i'm interested to see how the the shows or the emmys converge or diverge over the next few years yeah this one is going to be an interesting one to follow why don't we deep dive a little into some of the the, the big winners of the night and we'd love to hear your thoughts on um, on all of them so there were three big winners of the night uh sheets creek basically swept everything in the comedy section uh, succession did very well in the drama section, and then Watchmen did very strongly in the limited series, or how, how is it called? It has a specific name. Limited series or... Yeah, Outstanding No, now just it's limited just se- Outstanding Limited Series. Okay, yeah. perfect. So why don't we start in the same order that the telecast did it, which was with comedy. I have to say, I haven't watched Sheets Creek, uh, they swept the category, which meant, which means they won all of the seven big awards. They won all of the four acting categories: actor, actress, supporting actor, supporter, actress, best show, directing, and writing. This is a show that just finished in its in its sixth season. It wasn't nominated for anything in the first four seasons. Last year, I think it got two nominations and didn't win, and now it won everything. So I want to hear your takes because it 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 wasn't like it competed against nobody's. It competed against The Good Place, which was a very strong kind of a major cable show, and against The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which also did very strongly in two years. So, Kevin, this is a Canadian show. Tell us more, us mortal peoples, what the hell is Shit's Creek? Why did it did so well? Okay, so you're right. There has been kind of 
no attention giving to that show until last year. And I think there is a good reason why. So the show was produced by the CBC, the national broadcaster here in Canada. Um, I want to say on more or less a shoestring budget. This is not an expensive looking show. They have two or three main stages and it's your uh, kind of fish out of water uh, sitcom. It's about the Rose family that owned a, a blockbuster-like video rental service and they went bankrupt, not because of the streaming or anything, but because the the business manager they worked with kind of um, betrayed them, took their money, and as a joke, when they were rich, they bought this kind of country bumpkin town that... Um, they have the deed to the town. They kind of own the town. And so they move to that town and live in the town's motel and uh, interact with the people of that little town. It's never said that it uh, that it plays in Canada. It could be in like upstate New York or whatever. Um, but it is a very Canadian, wholesome show. Uh, it's created by uh, Dan Levy, who before that uh, is maybe only... Um, familiar to Canadian audiences if they were big fans of the show The Hills or Laguna Beach on MTV. Uh, he kind of moderated, he's a former MTV VJ. Uh, he moderated kind of the after show huh. to the reality series. And his father, Eugene Levy, who probably most people our age uh, like in our late 20s, early 30s, know as the dad from American Pie. But he's uh, very well known here in Canada and in the US for being on the SCTV show, kind of the second biggest sketch comedy show uh, apart from Saturday Night Live in its time, um, where Catherine O'Hara, who's also one of the main characters in the show, was also a part of. The show is amazingly funny. It's very well written. And it follows the kind of model we've been kind of familiarizing ourselves with. There's 13 episodes, they're kind of between 20 and 30 minutes. So it's very breezy. Why didn't Americans catch on to it early on, even though the show was just as good in its early seasons as it was in its late seasons, is it aired on a cable channel called Pop TV. Most people probably won't know where Pop TV is in their cable package if they have it. Uh, Pop TV has no shows that we kind of know. Nope. Like uh. that are mainstream known. Um, recently, they've picked up a discarded Netflix show that I really love called uh, One, One Day, Day at a Time. time. Right. The, yes. The uh, kind of newer version of uh, One Day at a Time now airs on Pop. So most Americans. Uh, were introduced to Schitt's Creek when it hit Netflix uh, one or two years ago. And it it really blew up on Netflix. And I guess the last season is coming on Netflix now or is already uh, on Netflix. And in a night where Netflix didn't win many awards last night, they still got to be really happy for all these Schitt's Creek wins. They didn't invest much money except for the licensing fee. Uh, they didn't do any marketing for the show and they had a historic sweep. It has never happened that a show uh, hit all of these seven categories uh, in one night. So great for Canada. 
<laughs> so yeah, the Canadians are, are going to own the Emmys. The Mexicans are owning the Academy Awards. Yes. Great representation for you guys here. <laughs> uh, I definitely buy the logic and agree with the logic there of it being a kind of a Netflix show. It's very similar to what happened with the CW with Jane the Virgin and especially Crazy Ex-Girlfriend a few years ago. Uh, even more so with Netflix is investing a ton of money into CW properties. But essentially, Netflix bumps up a kind of cult niche product from a lesser TV channel, becomes beloved on streaming, encourages these channels to keep making these shows so they can be syndicated on streaming later. And Schitt's Creek absolutely benefited from it. And I, I think it was just well poised by a lot of factors as well. You mentioned uh, the Levies and Catherine O'Hara. Uh, I grew up in a big Christopher Guest household, so grew up watching Spinal Tap, or then the the actual movies like Best in Show or Waiting for Guffman, where uh, Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara are both prime, primary in there. Also, we're an SCTV household, so knew of them. But I think also just Schitt's Creek is a perfect like symbiosis of a lot of trends we're seeing in TV right now. It's kind of like one half Bob's Burgers and one half uh, Parks and Rec with a dash of Arrested Development. It's much more of a like wholesome, everyone's really supportive, everyone's really loving. They might have conflicts with each other, but ultimately they're not trying to like destroy or tear each other down or mock each other. Um, especially around like representation with uh, the pansexuality of the lead character, David, played by Dan Levy. Just It's a really beautiful little show, and I, I think it's just one that people really fell in love with because they could just sit down and watch it and be entertained, but entertained in a way that really wasn't uh, challenging the like worst base instincts of their sensibilities when it came to comedy. So I think we've given Schitt's Creek all the flowers they deserve, but we would be remiss if we didn't mention what a strong year it was for uh, comedy. Uh, Dan Levy even said it in his acceptance speech uh, for writing uh, last night. Insecure on HBO had a really, really strong season. So did Curb Your Enthusiasm uh, on HBO. Uh, much better than... So they had this six or seven year hiatus, came back last year. I didn't think the, sh the season was as strong. It was really good this year. The Good Place not leaving with any awards through its really strong four-season run. And maybe this season wasn't the strongest, wasn't as strong as one and two. It was a good ending to a remarkable show to be on in primetime television, on network television. Uh, Mike Shore deserves everything. He's, he's challenging viewers, mass viewers, uh, even though you could argue that The Good Place it's also discovered by many people on Netflix when it when it gets on Netflix. And now I guess it's going to be on Peacock. But um, this show also lived on, on Netflix. And to have kind of practical philosophy or a philosophy 101 lecture uh, on, a, on a Wednesday night is just remarkable. Uh, Dead to Me, I think, was a funny show. Uh, I don't know if it had to be nominated. What We Do in the Shadows is a very, very funny show. It, it, it's not everybody's cup of tea humor, but uh, it is beloved in this household. And I know, uh, Eitan, you Big uh, enjoy it as well. I don't know. Um, the Kaminsky Method is <laughs> a, 
What word have... are you going to use? What word are you going to use? It's Golden Globes fraud. <laughs> yes, I think it makes sense for the Golden Globes to nominate the Kaminsky Method because then Michael Douglas and um, Alan uh, Arkin will show up. I, I don't know. It's the... I don't know, male version of Grace and Frankie. I think Grace and Frankie is maybe the more successful show even. Uh, there is shows that were not nominated. I just want to quickly hit uh, that could have been nominated in, in the Kaminsky Method or maybe even Dead to Me's place. Uh, I think Glow on Netflix doesn't get the recognition it deserves. I think it's a wonderful little show. Um, Silicon Valley went off the air this year. Um, also, a really good HBO property. In the writing categories and in directing, we saw The Great uh, nominated, and I think it might be The Great's year next year. The Emmys is always a bit delayed, which maybe is, uh, is to the detriment to a show like The Good Place, that they wait and they wait and they wait, and then in the last year where they air, they hit a juggernaut like Schitt's Creek and they, they're not awarded anything. And Rami. Rami had a really strong first season. The Golden Globes awarded uh, Rami for the first season. In the meantime, the second season came out and uh, Rami was not nominated in the Best Comedy, even though Rami Yusuf was nominated in Best uh, Lead Actor. Yeah, for me, kind of the biggest takeaway when, when I saw Sheets Creek uh, sweep was maybe similar to yours is this is, of course, not how voters make the decisions. They don't think about this. But from the audience perspective, I do kind of wish there was more uh, vari like variety and diversity. It's of course, it can happen, but it's difficult for me to think that they are the best at everything. That feels weird. So I don't know how much it impacts that. It's like, oh, yeah, this performance was great because this other performance was great or because the directing was great. And then it kind of... I, I kind of also wish that just as She's Creek is going to get a lot of attention, that it very well deserves that things like you mentioned, like for me, what what you do in the sh what we do in the shadows, maybe in one of the creative ones, right? Like they winning one would mean everything. As, again, this from the audience perspective. Yeah, and... I don't know what the right way to do the show is either. The Emmy has decided that we will do a whole block of comedy, then we will do the whole block of limited, and then we'll do all drama. And so for the first hour, 20 minutes of the telecast last night, you only had the same people on screen all the time. You had Jimmy Kimmel, you had a couple of announcers, and then you had Dan Levy and Eugene Levy accepting seven awards um, because they were also the writing team. Like, directing was different, but otherwise it was just the, the like Shit's Creek actors and you start to tune out as a viewer and the the Golden Globes spring, uh, used to sprinkle but then you kind of jump back and forth and it doesn't get into a flow either so I really don't know what the right way to do the show is on the note about writing and directing I think it's just difficult for voters to kind of understand those voices and how they shine through just in the, the nature of television as a medium Film tends to be a much more like auteurist medium in as much as you have maybe one voice crafting what the story is, another voice crafting everything from the directing perspective, like how it looks, how it feels, like assembling all the talent, pushing forward that vision. Whereas on TV, 
Uh, you could have anyone from like Gun Guns for Hire just come in and and do the uh, the directing for the show. You could have someone like Tommy Shalami for the West Wing who set the tone of the West Wing, but like nobody really knows who that guy is. Um, the Rousseaus are the same with Community. Uh, now they're on Marvel, uh, and I think you just end up having people like be like, well. Dan Levy must be like the signature voice of the show, even though there's a writers, there are other writers involved and, and other directors. Um, uh, Jason Bateman won directing a few years ago, and people were confused by that for Ozark. I think just with voting, it kind of seems easier just to vote with like, well, I like this show a lot. I like these people. Here's how it is without necessarily. It's hard to distinguish the directing differences between one episode directed by Jason Bateman and one episode directed by somebody they don't recognize name-wise. And I think it just complicates things on the Emmys front. Um, moving from one uh, category that the winner took place in Canada, where Kevin lives, to a show that took place in Oklahoma, where Carl is from and where he's right now, limited series Watchmen was the big winner of the night. Uh, before jumping into it, I would just say Watchmen is a TV show that it's based on a comic book series. There was a movie a couple of years ago directed by Zack Snyder. And even though I'm a person that kind of knows about comic books, the first time I heard about this before it came out, I was like, eh, I didn't love the movie. Uh, I don't know what this is going to be about. I don't know if this is going to be my cup of tea. This was probably my favorite piece of TV of the last year. So before we jump in, I would tell anyone listening, run to see Watchmen. It's an incredible show, what Damon Lindelof was able to do with something that so many people feel attached to from a fandom perspective and make it relevant to today. It feels, it, it came out, I think, before the pandemic, but it feels, and, and all of the racial, the racial justice um, things that are happening in the US, it's incredibly timely, it's beautiful, it's fun, it's different. Uh, kudos to the whole team. This was, it's just an amazing, amazing show. I adored Watchmen front to back. It's probably my third favorite dramatic series, period. Like, got Mad Men and Hannibal up there, and then this season of television just like completely blew me away. Just how it like reappropriates a lot of the imagery that's been taken by like white, angry nerd bros on the internet and uses it to tell a story about inclusivity and the like horrors of the part of the country that I'm currently sitting in. It's just really beautiful. And I think it's just really a affirmation for Damon Lindelof as well, who did excellent work and especially in the back part of the leftovers. Uh, for me, honestly, like people, a lot of people hate Lindelof for lost or for Star Trek into darkness or Tomorrowland or Prometheus. But for me, it's almost confirming maybe it's more the fault of J.J. Abrams, Brad Bird, and Ridley Scott that those things are, are a little messy. I think Lindelof is growing, if not like just a very mature talent now, and I'm excited to see whatever he does next. And as much as we're keeping on saying Damon Lindelof, Damon Lindelof, he, if he was here, would say he chose a super strong writing room Absolutely. Uh, for this show. Um and he would say all the credit to this writing team. This is not, he said it last night, this is not a white man's story to tell the way he wanted to tell it. I think 
he tempered expectations a little bit. Uh, I remember a year and a half or so ago, he penned this open letter to Watchmen fans. Do you guys remember that? Where he was like, we're not going to tell it like <laughs> as it is like in the panels of the graphic novel. We're going to tell one story and I want to tell it this story and you can like it or you cannot like it. And I thought, uh-oh, but I also thought, maybe <laughs> so i i really really pleased how it it turned out it is a fantastic uh piece of television this is the category though where good television is being made in the last i want to say four or five years we can go back in this category like six seven years ago and it's a real mess it's a real mess the last couple of years, with a really strong last year um, with uh, Chernobyl, I just um, finished Sharp Objects that I kind of never got into last week. Amazing. Uh, also an amazing limited series. Uh, this is, I think, the future of television. Let's just go quickly who else we had here. Unbelievable. Has a special place in my heart, even though I know it's probably because... There was too many nominees in uh, in directing for Watchmen that Watchmen didn't get the directing Emmy. They're unbelievable winning. It's a really, really good show. Worth, worth your time. Sit down. It's not even four hours. It's a unique story. It's very well acted and it looks expensive. It's on <laughs> Netflix. I haven't watched Miss America yet because I find... In these times, I can't just watch depressing things, but I'm going to watch it. I'm right and, there with and you unbelievable. on that. Yeah, I, I can't watch that show right now. <laughs> and uh, and Unbelievable was a really fun watch uh, with Tony Collette and Mary Weaver. Um, maybe not entirely on the on the level of the other three, um, but but even shows that that weren't nominated. Normal People, I think, a really strong Hulu show uh, of a very, very famous and beloved novel. And I think everybody agrees that they did a really good job. Um, there could have been some category fraud here as well with High Fidelity being cancelled, uh, <laughs> putting High Fidelity in this category or The Outsider, which I think is one of the better Stephen King adaptions of the last couple of years. Uh, Run, uh, I'm just reading the hbo slate okay. i think no the, but the other one that came out that uh i know i think i really liked most of maybe because it was different and i'm a big nick offerman fan uh devs was uh alex garland uh it's it's one of those shows if it, a lot of people didn't see it it's uh from fx you can catch it in hulu it was one of the only shows that I planned when to watch it because i wanted to watch it at night with the, when with the lights off because of how beautiful it was and the takes and the soundtrack and it might not be at the level to be here at the MAs, but it was just a show that i really really enjoyed that was quite different from a lot of things on tv right now devs is devs is the most alex garland alex garland thing which is saying a lot uh, i'm not shocked it didn't get the attention especially since it was moved to being kind of a flagship starter of fx on hulu with mrs america i think it just kind of got lost in the shuffle there the one thing I would have especially nominated it for, I mean, it was nominated for Cinematography and Effects, but also the score by uh, Jeff Barrows and uh, Ben Salisbury and the Insects is incredible. 
but I think the right show won, which was mm-hmm. Watchmen. I love the Reznor and Ross score on that so much. I'm excited to see them win an Emmy. But yeah, Devs is Devs is great. It's worth checking out, but was not here, and I'm not shocked it wasn't here. Let's uh, let's quickly acknowledge the insane run Regina King is yeah. on. Mm-hmm. Um, she's quickly just <laughs> amassing all the wins. So 2015, she wins the Emmy for American Crime in in this uh, um, in this category. 2016, she repeats. 2017, really dropping the ball, not winning for American Crime and not winning an Oscar either. But then 2018, winning for seven seconds in a, in a spectacular piece of, of category fraud. But uh, <laughs> I think she did a wonderful job in seven seconds. 2019, winning the Best Supporting Actress for If Beale Street Could Talk, a really, really beautiful movie. And, and now winning Watchmen, she's going to have her directorial debut later this year or early next year. I actually don't know when that uh, movie slated for. Regina King is amazing, and uh, she she talked very beautifully last night. She she looked beautiful. This show was really something that that stays with you. And she was in every major scene. Maybe not like okay, not to give too much away, but she's in most of the episodes <laughs> most of the time. That's very there nice is- of you. There is a shot in uh, If Beale Street Could Talk of her. I mean, there's many shots uh, in this movie of her looking kind of straight down the barrel of the lens and kind of a very Jonathan Demme close up. That's also what Barry Jenkins loves to do. And it's just like she's such a comforting motherly presence in that show and so beautiful, like of like the warmth she conveys. And then like there's a very similar shot throughout Watchmen as well. And it's like an entirely different character that you feel entirely different emotions while looking. But like at the same time, I find her to be such a calming and wonderful and beautiful screen presence that I'm so excited to see what the next five years of her career is. I hope she wins a lot more. Anything here in limited series that jumped on you? Somebody that won that maybe you were surprised or something that you wished would have won something else? Well, uh, in our little uh, Emmy sweepstakes, you both guessed correctly that uh, Yaya Abdul-Mateen would win. So good on you guys. (laughs) I think uh, he does an amazing job in in that uh, in that role. Roles. I just want role. Okay, fine. (laughs) Uh, We're not going to get into that. I I just want to. Um, acknowledge the two, the other two Watchmen actors in this in this uh, supporting actor category, uh, Giovanna Depo, who's really in one uh, Watchmen episode, and I think it's an incredible job. And Louis Gossett Jr. Um, throughout the run of the show, um, just a really smart cast, and I, I'm. A bit sad for Jean Smart. I think she mm-hmm. is also wonderful in that show. She didn't win last night. Uzo Aduba won for uh, Miss America. Uh, I'm not going to pass any judgment on that as I haven't seen the show. Uh, from the clips they chose last night, it looks like she's, she's doing a very uh, 
very fine job in that series as well. The award that I want to quibble with a little bit is Mark Ruffalo winning for I Know This Much Is True. It's a show that didn't get much attention uh, kind of in the late spring, early summer uh, this year on HBO. It's Mark Ruffalo playing uh, in a show where he plays two characters, uh, I think twin brothers. Um, I, I watched the pilot. I wasn't interested in, in continuing. Because it's a mix in this category between television movie and outstanding uh, limited series, uh, I think I want to mention Hugh Jackman in Bad Education, a really fun movie that won television movie, but maybe we'll talk about television movie in a little bit. What I would just say about Hugh Jackman is that uh, some people are saying that he's like the performance of his career. If he's shooting for the EGOT, this was a good... Does he have an Emmy already? He has a Tony for sure. A Oscar, I don't know. But He doesn't anyway. have an Oscar. People, yeah. If you haven't watched it, HBO, great movie. Sorry, Carl. There is a universe where Sundance went differently and somebody else acquired Bad Education. I... Looking at my best like films list this year, like he absolutely is my best actor in any movie this year. I love him in Bad Education. It's a phenomenal film. Also, really enjoyed Corey Finley's previous film, Thoroughbreds. Uh, just weird, quirky crime thing. But I'm happy because my best actress pick this year, Julia Garner, for the assistant. I mean, so far, did win an Emmy. So there's something there. Yeah. Uh, uh, just to let you know. Uh... Hugh Jackman has already an Emmy. Okay. For it's a Creative Arts Emmy, but oh, it's is, it's it, is it for hosting? It is for outstanding performance in a variety program in the fifty eighth Tony Awards. Yep. So it's probably one of the yeah. big opening numbers. Yeah, hosting. Yeah. yeah, I guess the only other one that I would I don't know if he would win, but the performance of Jeremy Irons in Watchmen as Adrian Bate is fantastic. Like every time he's on screen, he's very very funny. And he's he just has a great one. I I think he's great in that show. I would not put it on par with lead actor, like he's a Fair. supporting character uh, in that yeah. show. Um, there is no real male lead in the show, and uh, this is really a Regina King vehicle and her supporting cast. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I I enjoyed. His Adrian Veidt uh, portrayal as well, but I'm okay with them not sweeping that category. Same here. Before moving to uh, our last category, which is drama, I want to take a quick detour into the best TV for movie category. You were just touching on Incon, Bad Education, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this. This is a weird category. Do you see a future where this is going to continue to exist? Carl, you mentioned by education, it was a, a Sundance movie. It got acquired by HBO, so it ended up being a, a movie for TV, but it wasn't originally planned like that. Um, Netflix has a ton of movies that it can choose how to release by putting in the theaters for a little bit so that they count for the Oscars in, instead of here. Just what are your thoughts on around this category? Yeah, so it's a weird one, right? So to give a little bit of context... 
there, there's been a time in the last 20 years where they, where they started mixing outstanding television movie and outstanding limited series because there were, weren't enough nominees of each that were like up to Emmy standards. So between 2011 and 2014, it was one category. Um, and then they split it again because limited series became more... Uh, yeah, became kind of a popular category and the limited series became a popular format. Now, the television movie at the same time kind of fell off and in a year where there is no uh, anthology series like um, Black Mirror, where Black Mirror is now not allowed in this category anymore, they changed the rules last year that the television movie has to be at least 75 minutes long. And I think Bandersnatch got in because it's a choose-your-own-adventure movie that you can play up to three hours. Um, so that fits in. It won last year, and I think the choose-your-own-adventure movie this year, Kimmy Schmidt versus The Reverend, is a more successful version of, of that genre. But just going through um, the nominees this year, it's been a really weak category. American Sun that I haven't seen. Bad Education, which won and is the clear favorite here. Dolly Parton's Heartstrings, These Old Bones is an anthology series on uh, Netflix based on Dolly Parton's songs. Um, El Camino, the Breaking Bad sequel. Uh, maybe give more attention to uh, Better Call Saul than to <laughs> that movie. And then Breakable Kimmy Schmidt versus The Reverend. Um... Again, I feel like more of a proof of concept movie on the part of Netflix that maybe there's a future in these choose-your-own-adventure um, vehicles. I don't know. I find it more stressful than successful. But this category could be amazing again. And I'll tell you how. The Emmys and the Oscars with their bodies have to sit together and hammer out rules around streaming. Right now, you have this flimsy rule with the Oscars that you have to put a movie in a theater for two weeks in New York and L.A., and then you can qualify for an Oscar. This year, it's obviously suspended, so this year, any streaming movie can also make it into Oscars. I think as long as they're... Uh, it was originally intended. Some... Yeah. That's right. If, if they had a, a theatrical run... Um, intended now there were a few quite successful movies that came out over the last couple of months that if they were not allowed in the oscars this category would have been fun so um early on we had uh, the king of Staten island we had palm springs we had an american pickle and uh and and together the, the five, with bad education the Five Bloods. Um, okay, The Five Bloods, I, I probably would want to qualify. But uh, yeah, no, that's that's personal bias. But let's say The Five Bloods as well. That's an amazing category and that's a competitive category. And then bring back um, actor categories for this as well. Maybe not four, maybe just two. But let's let's make this exciting again. Maybe they want to cut time they've cut the outstanding television movie 
uh, out of the telecast last night. It, it's now in the creative arts portion. And it doesn't belong there. People work on these movies. And Bad Education has an incredible cast and is, is really a good movie. And for it to be awarded on some Friday afternoon uh, in the week leading up to the Emmys is, is a real shame. And, and I think the category deserves better. I agree that the category deserves better, and I also agree that there needs to be some delineation here. It does make me a bit sad, just like in the the movies that you're naming, like they are, for the most part, all comedy films or comedy forward films. And I think that just kind of furthers the like stratification of you've got like your dramas that matter and like are deserved to be seen in a theater. And you've got your uh, comedy films, which equally deserve to be shown in the theater but like shunted off into like streaming or tv but like that's not a problem that the awards bodies are going to solve that's just like endemic to how hollywood works and, and functions but it is sad hearing that um I, I think the one thing that's interesting going forward with the qualification thing with with theaters is that netflix owns two theaters now or is about to own two theaters they own the paris in new york they own the egyptian in l.a so for them to qualify a film for the Oscars, they have four slots they can show a movie in every day. And they could, if they wanted to, have four films running every day on these theaters. They're never going to have that many. But it's much easier to for them to qualify because they don't have to four-wall or, or block out theaters in L.A. and New York. They can just do what they were going to do anyway and just put it in theaters. But yeah, somebody needs to figure this out. Uh, I'm so glad they codified what a, a limited series is, what a movie is. I'm, it's Streaming has messed up the Emmys in so many ways, and they're finally getting control over it. So I'm sure this one will straighten out, too. Yeah, and I'm not saying that every Netflix movie should just qualify for streaming. Like, I was the first one to buy a ticket for Uncut Gems in the theater, and it is different than uh, to watch it in your pajamas on your couch. Uh, I just think that kind of the behind the candelabras of the world, like HBO shouldn't just own this category yeah. or then uh, Black Mirror when they have a, a, a season and, and now they, they have to stretch their episodes to be able to qualify. That makes no sense to me either. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's going to be interesting to see how, how these things evolve and how the awards continue to kind of adapt late usually to what yeah. where the content is and, and where it's going from um but i think that's also a good segue to the last category which was drama which the biggest uh, winner of the night a show close to our hearts not where any of us live uh it's succession uh which is uh, this show i think very loosely based on the murdoch family which own, owned i guess um, the news corp and 20th century fox and it's basically around this family that has owned, uh, how is it called? Waystar? Royco. Waystar Royco, which is this conglomerate of literally TV channels and studios and theme parks. And how the family tries to deal with uh, kind of the patriarch of the family potentially stepping down. It's also a fantastic show now in its second season. What are your thoughts on how this category uh, turned out? I was expecting more of a sweep, honestly, but I mean, that was more of my heart speaking than my head. It makes total sense that uh, the votes would be more split. And I think 
there are more allegiances to kind of down ballot shows as well. Uh, so if you take like a lead actor, um, actually, sorry, a lead supporting actor, Billy Crudup ended up winning for the morning show, which I doubt was most people's first pick, but you have in there Nicholas Braun and Kieran Culkin for Succession, as well as Matthew McFadden. So like, there's the votes split three ways there. Giancarlo Esposito for Better Call Saul. I really like Jeffrey Wright in Westworld, even though I don't like Westworld that much. Like, There's so many people, beloved actors in this that I think it, it was harder to jockey uh, who was going to be number one in these spaces. This one, the one that you just mentioned, I think it's definitely one where where uh, maybe people splitting the boat there really hurt. Uh, Matthew McFadden, who played Tom in Succession, or um, Kieran Culkin, who is for Roman Roy, and Nicholas Braun, who is uh, Cousin Greg. They were the three of them in the same category. And then it ended up going to uh, Billy Crudup for, for the morning show, which I know, Kevin, you have uh, strong feelings about. So... First of all, I do not understand why there is eight nominees in this outstanding supporting categories. I mean, yes, let's pass it around. But when you then fill it with like two morning show uh, um, uh, nominations and three succession, it's it just it muddies the water. So um, let's talk the morning show. Uh, <laughs> let's go there. I think... It looks expensive. It took a really big swing. And I loved to hate watch it. I think nominating Steve Carell in lead actor is a joke uh, here. He is wholly unlikable in this show anyways. He should be. That's the character. But it's not a lead performance. He's not in that much of the show. Billy Crudup... I have complex feelings. He is not bad in this show. If you're going to give it to somebody in this show, it's Billy Crudup. But he feels like he's in a different show than everybody else. He plays this kind of coked up executive, young executive that wants to shake up morning television. Not for me. Not for me. This could have been the Better Call Saul uh when that this show deserves the disrespect that the academy has for better call saul is astounding to me um better call saul was nominated for for best drama as it should have been it maybe should have won against succession it i think it is together with succession the best drama on television for Bob Odenkirk not to be nominated in lead actor and moreover for Ray Seahorn in a much less strong field of lead actresses uh, even though Zendaya winning great um, great performance in a show that went off the rails a couple times but she's really really strong in it Ray Seahorn deserves every award uh, for that portrayal and uh, and Tony Dalton in 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 uh, in Better Call Saul this year. I can just hope that it's kind of a Mad Men esque turn where they get everything for their last season. When they finish, I just want people to understand. When they finish, they will have made 
one more episode than Better Call Saul than they did Breaking Bad. Just for the people who are not aware, Better Call Saul is the sequel of Breaking Bad. They were able to keep their operation in Albuquerque going. Same writing team, same producing team. Uh, the location team. It just feels like a grown-up show that knows exactly what they're doing. They're putting cinematic experiences on the small screen every week. And I, I can't understand how you can nominate the morning show and uh and and certain shows that i think are a bit over the hump uh i think the crown had a really good season actually but killing eve i think by far it's its weakest season mm-hmm. um this year um ozark is the coked up version i've used the term before but is really the kind of high voltage version of Breaking Bad where you can kind of stuff four seasons of Breaking Bad into one season of Ozark everything happens all the time Julia Garner is doing like a a very good job but I think this should have been uh, Sarah Snook's award or Fiona Shaw's award or (laughs) and so on and so on I think this was a stack category that had for me a surprising way and Carl you picked her from the beginning uh Succession is a great show. Go watch it. Uh, I think it was smart to award it for the second season. It wasn't as strong in season one, at least for the first half of it. Second uh, season is amazing. And I think they got the writing or the directing award for the um, season finale, which looks beautiful and is fun to watch. Um, What did you think, Carl? With the Julia Garner Award, I predicted her winning less because, I mean, frankly, I've seen one episode of Ozark. Like, I, Ozark is not my show, basically because it is a coked up Breaking Bad, and I am, I'm not a huge Breaking Bad fan. I think Better Call Saul is a tremendous show in leagues beyond anything Breaking Bad got to, except maybe in its peak episodes like Ozymandias. Like, I, I Better Call Saul, like, there are seasons of Better Call Saul that are, like, better than the entirety of Breaking Bad for me. Like, it's a fantastic show. Uh, I chose Julia Garner solely because, like, it's she's one of the few people in this entire nomination category, or all these nominations, that seems like she's starting to have a, like, star moment. She's, like, starting to get in cast in a lot of things. Uh, I mentioned she's my best actress pick this year for The Assistant. I think it's a tremendous performance. Uh, I think she's just slowly breaking out, uh, or very quickly breaking out as an actress. And... There's just been so much love for Ozark at the Emmys over the years that seems kind of misplaced. So I, my bet there was if the voters are going to go for Ozark, they're going to go for her here. And I lucked out there. But overall, yeah, the, the drama, there's a lot of really great specific things to, to recognize here. I think overall, like I, I'm happy that the, the love is spread a little bit more mm-hmm. around, uh, I actually am surprised that Billy Porter didn't get recognized, but Jerry Small, Jeremy Strong's a tremendous performance in Succession. I'm, I'm happy he won, but Billy Porter has and been, Billy Porter won last year. Yeah, like he he won last year. I think there's still so much love for for that there. Um, overall, like yeah, I mean, I'm just so many great names in this nomination bracket. Uh, yeah, I, I would be remiss a little bit if I didn't bring up some of the controversy leading up. Like, Billy Porter 
was the only uh, person nominated from Pose. Um, the transgender characters like uh, Janet Mock and Our Lady J were not nominated, and Hunter Schaefer, who had a really tremendous performance on Euphoria, also a transgender actress, not nominated. Um, I thought they gave Billy Porter the award um, last year and maybe like there was not enough to repeat compared to the like strengths of Succession where I think they were going to give it to Brian Cox. I hope they would give it to Jeremy Strong. Um, but uh, yeah, a bit of, yeah, a bit of a, a sour taste there. Um, another little snub from Succession that I want to mention, J. Smith Cameron, who plays uh, Jerry on Succession. Fantastic this season. Uh, would have maybe warranted uh, a nomination in, in an already crowded field. But uh, no, I, I largely, largely agree here. I do too. And Aton, I'm I'm so sorry, but I'm very happy the Mandalorian did not walk away with outstanding drama here. Like it's I, I a don't pretty know. Show. I mean, you don't have to apologize. I don't know why why it was nominated. <laughs> I it's just like it's it's nice to see Disney Plus guest get something here, but uh, Mandalorian's but it, I mean, just an odd bird. Yeah. I think I mean I think I and probably all of us understand that uh, what Disney Plus is going for is not Emmy nominations, at least not but, yet. So I mean, they won. They won in the creative arts for... They've done a, amazing stuff on the visual effects and cinematography, and they won a couple of things there. But yeah, to, to see them here, it was surprising. You don't have to apologize, Carl. But I, I do expect you guys in your upcoming Star Wars shows to mention that Mandalorian is among the better things Star Wars has done in uh, decades. So, like, to just write it off here on this podcast that I didn't think it had a chance to win anything, but it has been a very enjoyable watch in this household. It is definitely going to be like we're restructuring our Star Wars coverage as a trilogy. Spoilers, like the third episode in the trilogy is going to be a huge downer for the most part, but The Mandalorian is a very strong bright spot in it. And as Eitan mentioned, like it is pioneering in visual effects, not just the fact that like it looks good, but uh, they're doing stuff with like onset virtual photography and like the way they're kind of pre-vising and post-vising uh, all the effects for the show like on like live. It is a whole like experiment on John Favreau's part of like how to make the future of film here, and and I I think it is very good. It's just timbre-wise, it's much different than Star Wars typically is, which is a good a good thing and. I just don't think it necessarily belongs in the same conversation as Succession or Better Call Saul. Yeah. The other thing that it won, I think, very deserved, very deserved was uh, soundtrack for Ludwig yeah. Göransson's score, which is fantastic. He's he's close to an EGOT now. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he won for Black Panther. Uh, I would not be shocked if he won for Tenet this year, just because there's not going to be a lot of stuff there. But yeah, we'll see. Let's just knock out um, uh, two other categories very, very quickly uh, that we had on our on our sweepstakes sheets. Ascending Variety Talk series that kind of looks at late night shows. Um, once again, last week tonight with John Oliver uh, won. Since its inception, I think it has won every year. 
That before that, this was the Daily Show slash Colbert Report Award. In this category, you'll just get nominated and nominated and nominated again. I think Jimmy Kimmel must have probably been nominated 15 times or so. Like he's probably and, never and, winning. And not one. And I, yeah, I, I think so. Uh, and then the other one, Outstanding Competition Program, which for a long time was dominated by uh, the likes of uh, Big Brother or The Amazing Race. Now for a couple of years running, uh, RuPaul's Drag Race has been winning. Uh, RuPaul also won in the Creative Arts Emmys as a host of competition programming. Um, deservedly so, but it is a cool world where RuPaul's Drag Race is the establishment. Yeah. On a on a on VH1, you know, I don't know how people are watching this, especially uh, young people who don't have cable. But it seems to resonate, and and it's leading cultural conversation. Hey, all of it's on CBS All Access, so that's oh, there you go. Where you're going to go to watch RuPaul. that's a pull. And I don't know if uh, I don't know about the US, but here and in the rest of the world, it is on Netflix. Everything but the current season. I think in Mexico as well. Netflix. With with the Variety Talk series, just a quick stinger on that. John Oliver, I'm not surprised that he won. Like he's he's been very successful in in leveraging and transforming that show, and like leveraging YouTube and other platforms to grow his fan base and his show. Uh, I was a little surprised that. Uh, so my guest was on Colbert here, who I think transitioned the best to kind of the COVID virtual format of the talk show and. Uh, handling the the transition in through March and May for his eligibility period, uh, I thought maybe there would be an edge there, but I think overall, like John Oliver's brand was just too hard to be here. Yeah, and I agree. I I, I was a big fan of the Colbert Report, Kevin, as as you know, and he definitely had a bumpy ride the first maybe two years on CBS, but I feel I feel like he really found his footing like maybe three four years ago, and he's really redone that show and. I agree that you, the awards are not just to say like, oh, he redone it and he deserves it because John, John Oliver has maintained a very high quality. But I agree that like what Stephen Colbert has been able to do and like he just overtook Fallon and ran away with the with the nightly like late shows and he seems to not be getting recognition. Not that this is the only recognition he could get, but I was also surprised. I also would like to see him win soon. Yeah, and we should say, like, the work rate is insane. Like, John Oliver does 30 or 35 shows a year. Colbert and these guys, they're doing two, 200, 220, um, sometimes live. Um, we, sh- we should acknowledge that. If we're talking about transitioning and, like, people who I think should be recognized in this category, maybe by nomination at least... Uh, Dizes and Mero on on Showtime, they actually transitioned very well. They they kind of came up with a podcast, and uh, uh, and were then on Viceland and a year and a half or so ago transitioned to Showtime. And it's 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 a really refreshing show twice a week, Sundays and Thursdays, and one of the more puzzling decisions by Netflix uh, to cancel. Uh, Patriot Act about a month or, mm-hmm. or so ago with Hassan Menhaj, a former Daily Show correspondent, I think, uh, just with how the show looks and how it interacts with data and kind of visual explainers 
I think I will miss that show. It's not a typical late night show. And I think Netflix is a bit too fast in canceling its um, late night programming, if you could say that. So uh, Chelsea Handler had a show that I think wasn't a bad show. Um, then they had uh, Michelle Wolf for a little while. And they had Patriot Act. Uh, which got them into some hot water with the mm -hmm. royal family in Saudi Arabia. And I really hope that it's not outside pressures that move them um, to uh, cancel that show. I really hope to see Hassan Minhaj in a hosting role uh, somewhere else. He has proven himself as a great host and kind of roast slash joke master when he was uh, hosting the White House Correspondents' Dinner, uh, or as a correspondent on The Daily Show. I think he's he's a terrific guy, and uh, yeah, hope to see him soon somewhere. I mean, how many... So of the five nominees in this category, four of them owe their career to The Daily Show. Like, they are all... I mean, and one of them is The Daily Show with Trevor, no Trevor Noah now. Like, it is amazing the level of, of, of hosts and, like, very thoughtful commentary that has come out of that and yeah it, it's sad to see like a lot of it not recognized or even cancelled and hopefully he's able to like leverage his time with Patriot Act into something greater uh, maybe more on network or something else I wanted to quickly talk about the Emmys as a show uh, last night uh, it was uh, kind of titled the Pandemies <laughs> and uh Jimmy Kimmel, not uh, my cup of tea in late night, but I think he's kind of grown into this hosting gig. He hosted the Oscars twice. He hosted the Emmys twice. Um, he did a serviceable job. It was interesting. A lot of the uh, nominees were in their houses where uh, uh, people in hazmat suits drove to their house and uh, <laughs> delivered statues. In other instances, they sent boxes that could be automated to kind of explode and a kind of fist with the emmy <laughs> would kind of spring out like a like one of these joke boxes with a with a boxing glove uh, i i felt it was maybe a slight dig to like gender reveal parties <laughs> i enjoyed the show it was still three hours long the ratings cratered once again uh, i hope i'm not outing you uh, Aitan, but Aitan was watching the Patriots-Seahawks game last night, which drew in double the audience of the Emmys. The Emmys uh, with a record low 6.1 million mm -hmm. and for, uh, for households. For context, for the people that don't know about sports, <laughs> this was the second <sighs> week of football. So this is like the least important, like the second least important week of football, technically. And you could even say that it's the least because the first one, people are excited to have it. But this is like non-important football. And it was still double. It is true. To be fair, a little bit to the Emmys. Uh, they were counter-programmed against a NBA playoff game. Usually the NBA playoffs are in May and June. Um, and this, this football game where it is week two, but it is... Uh, at least one of the teams that has a very spread uh, fan base that and where people can't go to the stadium 
Uh, also, Seattle, a, a sports town, it likes to go to the stadium, tuning into their Seahawks. But pulling 12.2 million versus a measly 6.1. Just for reference, last night was the um, season premiere of 60 Minutes. Uh, drew in more uh, viewers than the Emmys with 7.5 million. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. It Just every year it goes down. It's the, It was the first major award show um, since uh, COVID was uh, widespread earlier this year. There were the BET Awards. They did a really good job, I think, um, with the circumstances. A month ago were the, or three weeks ago, were the MTV uh, mu- uh, Movie Awards, or um, Video Music Awards, actually, sorry, uh, that did an okay job. And I thought last night, under the circumstances, did a good job. But uh, uh, something's got to give. Like ABC last night, not going home with any awards. Um, Disney not really uh, winning anything. Uh, Maybe trouble ahead in the House of Mouse. Who has given up kind of mainstream football, right? It's only on ESPN um, within the family. Or does ABC show primetime football as well? They, They don't have it right now. But the, this is a topic where you and I, Kevin, can talk for a long time. Uh, football rights are starting to come off in the next couple of years. The first one is Monday Night yeah. Football, which is ESPN, which is the, the biggest. And there's been talks that if Disney bids for it, it would be for ABC. So for network and not for ESPN, for cable, which would be huge. Hey, Sorry, hey, John, tangent. I was uh, one of the, you know, I was in the top 5% of people in my sports management class of business school so i know sports rights so perfect we can talk about that i'm I'm kidding i actually know nothing about it i just wrote a good paper but anyway yeah i to to kevin's point i think it's really a fascinating precursor to like how we're going to manage the next nine months of or longer of just how we do these award shows uh they're just amazingly technically complex there were 150 discrete video streams last night that they were having to track uh, because you can't like you have to cycle between all the stars that are all like watching it. Uh, they were also using old footage from previous broadcasts of crowds and noises of crowds. They had some pre-taped stuff. They had some live stuff. Uh, just a massive headache, even worse than normal award shows. So just interesting to see how they're going to learn from this. And ABC is doing the Oscars, so they'll definitely be able to do something with this. So with that, I think we can bring our segment, our main segment to a close today. It's going to be our longest episode, so thank you for pushing us over the edge there, Kevin. <laughs> and we're going to switch over to our Ask Us Anything segment. And as our guest, Kevin, you want to ask us anything? I actually have two questions. Um, let's start with this one that's still more tangentially connected to the Emmy. So... Everybody hates Emmy snubs, but let's talk Emmy snubs. Who do you guys think is the worst continuous Emmy snub uh, of all times? And I, I uh, when I asked you so you could do a little research before the show, just to be sure, it's the criteria was either a person in the same role getting either nominated a lot of times or just an actor being nominated a lot of time for different roles uh, and never winning one. 
Uh, I'll let you answer first, and then I'll give uh, I'll give mine. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have I I have to research to confirm, but I have one for each comedy and drama. For drama is one that we already mentioned early is uh, Hugh Laurie for House. He's had ten nominations now for Emmy. I think he had seven for uh, House. He had one last year for Veep. And I think he had also a couple for The Night Manager. Um, So that's 10. I I loved House. I think he's a great performance. I think when I was young and I watched his actual accent and being from the UK and the limp and it's just like a great performance and he was nominated seven times for it and he never won. That's a show close to my heart that I enjoyed with like my family and my brother and with you, Kevin, in Israel. So it's like I, I went through a lot of stages with that show and his character is like a... It brings me comfort, even though he's a very strange character. And on the comedy side, the one that I had to confirm, but I thought it was true, is Steve Carell for The Office. He yeah, was nominated big one. five times for The Office. He never won. He's been nominated for a couple of other things since, including this year. I think he's had nine nominations total, and he's never won. And then just very quickly, the ones that I did a little research that were surprising for me. One was Kristen Wiig, uh, a lot of time in Saturday Night Live. And then a couple of other things. I think she's had eight and not one. And then George Constanza, Jason Alexander, yeah. was nominated, I think, eight years for the same character. And he never won. Nine. Nine. Unbelievable. Uh, I know I'm in the modern era of TV. As you can probably tell, I'm not a historian. I'm sure I'm missing a lot of others. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts, Carl. So I will start off with my one historical pick here which is Angela Lansbury for Murder She Wrote I mean she was nominated 17 times as Jessica Fletcher in Murder She Wrote like what what the hell else were they awarding like (laughs) that she didn't win in the 80s and 90s for that role like she's tremendous in it she's like just lovely so very sad about her not winning that ever uh then let's do modern era uh Two comedy Janes never won. So Jane Kaczmarek for Malcolm in the Middle, who I think is just a tremendous performance. Oh, I thought I could do that one. Ah, you can still <laughs> you do, can that do one. it. You can still do it. Uh, she, <laughs> she steals the show for me in that, that show. And like, Brian Krantz is incredible in it, but she is just like such an amazing performance in that. Nominated seven times without a win. Jane Krakowski nominated four times for 30 Rock and once for Kimmy Schmidt never won. I love her in both of those, even though they are kind of the same character with different flex. Um, and then one person that's never been nominated is Vincent Carthizer, who I love as Pete on Mad Men. I thought that he took so many different directions with that character, and he was never nominated. So that was really sad for me, and he's not doing a ton right now. So, Kevin, what about you? Well, I, yeah, I, Steve Carell is the number one pick for... For me, I think that's a bit of a travesty. And and so is Jason Alexander, to, to be quite honest. Uh, just to, to mop up here a little bit. Uh, Lena Dunham, mm. uh, nominated eight times for Girls, never won. I know we could go through the Mad Men cast, but uh, my heart... <laughs> to is, make uh, Carl Christina happy. He- <laughs> my, my, my allegiance is with Christina Hendricks, who's, yes. who's, who hadn't won for the show. Uh we don't talk about the show anymore, but it's not because of her. Uh, Robin Wright, nominated five times for mm. House of Cards. Uh, she's tremendous in that show. Uh, somebody who was nominated in two shows, never won. Michael C. Hall, 
uh, nominated for Six Feet Under and Dexter, and mm-hmm. never won, six-time nominee. And then two that were nominated this year, um, Sandra Oh, uh, nominated eight times for Grey's Anatomy and Killing Eve, uh, as Eve Palastri, and Anthony Anderson, the record holder amongst the men in, I guess not, I guess not because of uh, Jason Alexander. He's nominated. He's been nominated nine times for acting and uh, producing, though. Uh, Blackish. But yeah, the ones that that really hurt for me: Steve Carell, uh, uh, Jen Krakowski. Um, yeah. And and, and uh, yeah, Hugh Laurie. I think one of those times, like the Jen Krakowski ones especially heard because it was in a time where like Julie Bowen won it twice for Modern Family and I think you could have given it to her once in those years I I don't think Julie Bowen is bad in Modern Family that's actually how I felt a little bit during the whole Schitt's Creek run the the Emmys that are really stuck in my head still or this one scene are the 2011 Emmys Jane Lynch was hosting and the first three or four awards all went to Modern Family and she comes out and is like, welcome back to the Modern Family Awards. And I thought maybe they're going to make the joke again. Um, last night, welcome to the Shits Creek Awards. Uh, so that was my first <laughs> question for you guys. And uh, I'm actually going to surprise you. I'm not going to ask a second question that I told you in the, in the pre-production. Uh-oh. That's meeting. better. This uh, is better. This is great. Okay. Going back to something you guys talked about a couple weeks ago. So, Chloe Zhao, um, her new movie uh, just came out in, uh, I think it's called Telluride in LA. Uh, so, they, they set up um, Telluride screen at the Rose Bowl in LA and was a drive-in where people were invited to watch certain Telluride movies, but also here at TIFF, uh, Nomadland, I think 10 days ago, uh, there was a a drive-in. I didn't score any tickets, but I talked to a couple of folks who did. Um, And there's major awards buzz for Nomadland. Um, I know you, Carl, I think, have seen The Rider. I don't know if, Eitan, you've seen it. The Nomadland movie similar construction with Francis McDormand in the in the main role but the rest again kind of not non-professional actors you guys are the defenders of the house of mouse <laughs> I wouldn't what is the eternals movie going to be <laughs> i mean <laughs> you took I, it like I, you took us to the festivals. You took us to non-professional uh, actors, and you brought I, us I back to I was going to pull up the wik- I was going to pull up the Wikipedia article and read the like two sentence synopsis for Eternals, and, and read it to you. And it's like, how and how did Disney or Marvel think that that's the pairing? I mean, that's why I keep bringing it up because this kind of the unspoken thing every time I bring Chloe Zhao up is just why the hell is she making a Marvel movie? Like, where did that come from? And especially coming off of whatever Nomadland's going to be, I mean, it won the it won the Golden Lion, it won the Audience Award at TIFF. Uh, it's 
I think it's going to play in New York as well. It's going to go into every festival. McDormand's always awards buzz because of Fargo and Three Billboards. Uh, I would love for this to pull something like Roma did where it elevates kind of a non-actor into acting Oscar consideration. This is going to be a weird thing where she's going to be coming out of this, like at least glowing from awards and then having a Marvel movie that may or may not have her in it, like her personality and, and altruism. Just quick insert here. If Frances McDormand wins uh, for this movie, she's going to tie um, Catherine Hepburn's record of three uh, three Oscars in, in that category. So uh, Exciting. I, I really like her in Fargo. I think she was good in Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. That movie is not my cup of tea. I agree, I agree. Um, yeah. But uh, I guess a deserved, uh, a deserved win there, but um, that's that's like rarefied air if she if she wins again. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I'm going to say like life-changing stuff because I haven't seen her work. Uh, but we, we talked in a couple of other episodes of how... Uh, one of the areas where I give Disney credit with this stuff is, uh, ah, no, for like for, main, for mainstream media, it looks like they give chances to unknown directors, which is not true because they are not unknown. They're very famous, just not mainstream. However, where they do take a chance is when things like this, right? Like it's different to give Chloe Zhao uh, the Eternals with Angelina Jolie and probably the like the next big thing or uh, Taika Waititi. He was you know, kind of big, or you could say the Russo brothers, right? We mentioned them, but like the, the, the last movie they did before they did Captain America was you, me and Dupree. So like, I get that these are people that are talented, but taking them from where they are and giving them the budget and the marketing and the leash, I think it's, I don't know if it's something worth saying positive, but like they, they do have a history of doing this, right? Taking non-mainstream or people that are known for other types of prop, uh, Projects, we talk about Ryan Coogler, he also had a little bit different. Um, and just taking, like, actually trusting them to go, right? Versus we've also talked about things like, oh, Brad Bird, he was super famous. Or sorry, Andrew Stanton. And who was Tomorrowland? Sorry. Bird was. Bird. Was and Andrew Stanton yeah. is John Carter. Yes. And then maybe those don't work out. So I think it's just an interesting one. I So I'm going to come out as a pessimist about... Eternals like the cast is incredible and the cast is kind of a who's who of of tv and like comedy from the the last decade like it's really going to be I think a terrific cast and do well I'm insane looking as as I'm looking at it but um there's two things kind of working against it for me from a like will Chloe Zell do something like tremendous and unique here one is just the way Kevin Feige runs Marvel which is uh, there's lots of chess pieces that need to be put into place for the franchise. Supposedly, that's disappearing now that the, quote, Infinity Saga is gone, and they're going to be able to do a lot of disparate things. But overall, like uh, Disney is, is very much a fan of pre-vising the action and like kind of pre-animating and telling the directors, okay, you can do everything you want in the margins. So like Taika or Ryan Coogler, like, they can tell whatever they want in the margins as long as the action sequences are kind of set because they're so long to develop. 
And Eternals is going to be very CG and FX heavy across the board, not just action sequences. So that kind of worries me there. And then the, the other thing is, as we're going to get to in the next Star Wars episode next month, Disney is not a fan of experimentation and naturalism in directing films. And Chloe Zhao is a very like measured, quiet director in how she captures the like, kind of nuance and settings the writer is, is very slow and very quiet and just kind of very beautifully well observed and uh garrett edwards tried to do that with uh, his take on rogue one before he was forced to reshoot lord and miller just got mired in not being able to run a, a massive big budget production because they were trying to do improv on set while also doing these massive cg things so like i am just interested to see how the Chloe Zhao of it all, Joel's of the Disney of it all. Maybe it's the best movie I've ever seen, but uh, <laughs> I'm not hopeful of that. Those were great questions, Kevin. Thanks for bringing them. We, we usually, by the way, for your context, for everyone else, we do the questions live. Like if I'm giving a question to Carl, I don't tell him in advance what it's going to be. And he does the same for me. So good, good mixing it there. Well, Kevin, thanks for coming. Like Carl said, this is going to be our largest episode. We'll probably have to experiment giving people like the timestamps and saying like, if you want to go to comedy, go here. If you want to go to limited series, go here. But one of the, again, the reason we started this podcast was because we enjoyed having these types of conversation with us, with these types of people. So this was great. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Um, I, I really enjoy listening to you guys. And uh, this was fun. And uh, I remain at your disposal. Thank you, Kevin. I, I really appreciate that. So is there anything you want to plug besides your Twitter, which is at Kevin Osax? Uh, no, that's it. If you come for my TV, movie, and food takes, uh, that's the place to go. And uh, yeah, uh, rate and review this podcast. There you go. Uh, congrats again on your house. Look forward to hearing more about that. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been Stalking Development, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you later.